0: Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Mark Evans, OBE, has spent a decade working at the executive level of the New Zealand Police and is currently their executive lead for future policing. In a previous career, he reinvigorated crime and intelligence analysis in the police service of Northern Ireland. We discuss what he's learned about change and innovation in policing in large agencies. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe and this is Reducing Crime. Mark Evans, OBE, is the Executive Lead for Future Policing with the New Zealand Police and has been a member of their executive team since 2011. He is the Chair of the Independent Advisory Board at the Royal New Zealand Police College and has an operational portfolio focused on fair and equitable policing outcomes, evidence-based policing and the future use of new technologies. He was also the New Zealand Police Lead for their response to the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the terrorist attacks on two mosques in Christchurch on 15 March 2019. Prior to moving to New Zealand, he worked in numerous positions in Northern Ireland, culminating as the Director of Analytical Services for the Police Service of Northern Ireland. For his efforts, he was awarded an OBE, that is, he was named an Officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2006 for services to policing. An innovator in the education and practice of evidence-based policing, he has an MBA from Manchester Business School, was inducted into the Hall of Fame at the Centre for Evidence-Based Crime Policy at George Mason University last year, is a visiting professor at University College London, and is vice president at the Australia and New Zealand Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Good grief, I don't think this guy ever sleeps. We caught up one morning in February at a central London coffeehouse. It's a good place for let's just say off-campus meetings, so I'm not gonna reveal the location. But please bear with a little background noise in the proximity of the coffee machine. It was a chilly morning, so I wasn't gonna interfere with the baristas working their magic. As you join us, I was just explaining to Mark why I wrote my latest book, Evidence-Based Policing The Basics. Yes, a shameless plug, and you can find it on Amazon. And the goal of making the book more accessible to frontline policing. For me, a chunk of it is about just demystifying evidence-based policing. Yeah. It, it's horrible because if you listen to academics, of course what they want to demonstrate half the time in their presentations is how clever they are or how hard they worked. And then you look at you know police officers who want to get into this going, I can't do this and of course they can. Yeah. We just have to set realistic goals for what it is. It, you know, you may not win the Stockholm prize because you're not doing yeah. a non-linear multi-level yeah, model, yeah. but you know what? If you get a control area and a target area and you try something in that area and you've got a comparable mm. area just doing business as usual, you're doing evidence-based policing. If you're reading the yeah. literature, using it, you know, you're doing evidence-based policing. Yeah. You know, so we
1: set up a center and uh, the challenge I think is around how you make it relevant to frontline policing and we can overcomplicate things in ways that make it really difficult for people or you can talk to people in a language and do things that it's undeniably the case that it's made a difference to the way that we police but you have to make it relevant because the people who deliver the service of policing Yeah are the frontline officers and the sergeants who decide what we're going to do today.
0: The sergeant is such a role in policing, isn't it? The sergeant. You can come up with the best project in life if you get the sergeant's buy-in. It could be fantastic. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think the, the you know the sections beat constables and they look to their sergeant mm-hmm. as in that, that sergeant is critical. Absolutely. He or she, Absolutely. you know, in terms of probably their career um, pathways to be honest. And, and the sergeant indicates to them
0: what's important today where we're going to go how we're going to police and what we care about yeah yes yeah. and what yeah. we care about and that's a very much an interesting signal it must be quite a change moving to policing in new zealand because it just has so many more different cultural elements to it that make it very different than your previous experience involved in policing in northern ireland so we've established a, a really
1: eminent panel of community academic experts to work alongside the police as part of our understanding policing delivery program and many of those individuals have grown up through really interesting work in the community whether it's in the health field the education field or some of them actually in the margins of policing but all of that expertise is helping us think through actually how we get some positive change if needed in the way that indigenous communities perceive the police.
0: But, yeah. but you didn't start in policing. You started uh, over in Sk- Squirrel's didn't you?
1: <laughs> well, I did international relations at university and had no idea what I wanted to do, uh, other than travel, actually.
0: The yeah. people who used to scare me at university were the 19-year-olds who absolutely yeah. knew what they wanted yeah, to do. Those odd. people are terrifying. Yeah, yeah, that. you're right. Yeah, And life's not really like that. Yeah. Um,
1: Actually, so I left and became an accountant in Bristol, actually, in the west of England. And to say I hated it and wasn't very good at it would be an understatement. So anyway, it it led to me making different choices and I ended up working for Defence Intelligence actually in the Ministry of Defence. Not an oxymoron. The other ones are the best. And to be honest, they gave me really good training and sent me, not quite all over the world, but to places I was really interested in. Right. And um, yeah, did some fascinating stuff in the Middle East. and. So Asia you really learn, I think, about how intelligence works, you know, how to write effectively, how to work with decision makers, and particularly, I think, how to use intelligence when things aren't going so well and people badly need advice, insights, that are going to help them make a better decision.
0: It's interesting that the first thing you highlight is the importance of good writing.
1: The ability to write precisely, to come to a conclusion, to actually have an opinion, and to construct an argument that leads
0: you to the conclusion, I've discovered is a skill that not everybody has. So, especially with uh, people coming up nowadays, it's not just sending somebody a shit emoji. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the ability to construct an argument is critically important, and I don't think that's really changed. You know, I tend to spend my days now as more of a decision maker than a technical person and I don't really have time to read more than a couple of pages. I really need to know what people think so that I can compare and contrast it with my perspective and then use it to hopefully make a better decision, which which seems to me to be what it's all
0: about. Right, but isn't that the antithesis of how universities teach people how to write?
1: It would appear that that's a different sort of skill to the traditional research-looking depth provide all the perspectives and then come to a a view and not necessarily write in such a way that you expect somebody to take action on it and it's that action piece that i think makes intelligence and the work of evidence based policing different to the work in research that's done at a university so i tell people we are not a university there's a place for academic studies and it's valuable and research does
0: inform and guide a lot of what we do but it's not what you're paid to do in your day job. Change the thinking of decision makers. Mm. Comes back to our discussion to some degree about the value of sergeants. I'm constantly surprised at the naivety of a lot of academics who complain that nobody pays attention to their research, but they don't actually interact with the decision makers or the front line at all. They never go on ride-alongs, they never go on police meetings. They just sit remotely, download some data, write some academic journal article in the Bangladeshi Journal of Sheep Stealing and Criminology and then complain that nobody uses their work. It's the naivety, it's yeah. astounding.
1: Well, I've been fortunate, you know, that um, people like yourself, Gloria Leacock, who came to Belfast when I was working there and ran a session with our then area commanders about burglary. Right. And this was in 1998, I think it was. And frankly, it opened my eyes to what an academic who understands policing and wants to work with frontline officers can actually do for you. Yeah. And it made a big difference. She spoke in a language that people understood. There were some really practical ideas in it. So it's about understanding the culture yes. and landing an argument in an environment where people say, I actually understand this, and yeah. I think it will make a difference. Yeah. And
0: yeah. actually, it did. Yes. But <laughs> well, we jumped a little bit. What made the move from defence intelligence? Tell me how you got from there to working in Ireland. working in Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah, Northern Ireland. Yeah, the Northern Ireland office was setting up this unit. So in the mid 1990s, fair to say that Belfast was a bit awash with terrorist money on the republican and the loyalist side, and a unit was set up to try and take some of the money out of the paramilitaries. So. Me, together with a smallish team, given some specific powers to invite people in and require them to answer questions. You're wording this delightfully. (laughs) Uh, And I think we made a little bit of a difference. Professionally, it was a fascinating time. Right. And I think we created some space to allow a conversation around what became the Good Friday Agreement. It taught me a lot about the importance of really good intelligence to guide investigations to the right people in the right place.
0: What was that move to go from military intelligence and from national security work when you started to see more and more about what was involved in policing? Because police intelligence work is or the decision-making environment around security and intelligence is very different in policing. It's a little bit of
1: an unusual pathway, I think, uh, you know, for people to choose. I think it was the Northern Ireland environment. It seemed like a logical thing at the time, because I got asked to extend the, the work that we were involved in to organise crime, for example.
0: What was your impression of frontline policing delivery, day-to-day policing delivery in Northern Ireland at the time? because they transitioned from being the Royal Ulster Constabulary to being the police service of Northern Ireland. They're going through a lot of change, which seems normal for policing every day now.
1: Yeah, well, of course, the organisation, you know, it was the badge, it was the uniform, it was the structure, it was the lead. I mean, pretty much everything, everything changed. changed. I think the, you know, the organisation for a, a number of years actually was under enormous pressure, and there was a lot of different views and opinions about whether it was the right thing to do, and it was obviously Part of the changes around the Good Friday Agreement and changes to policing were, were seen as an important contribution yeah. to lasting peace. So I was always immensely impressed with the ability of police officers to go about their day-to-day business and do their best for communities, even in the face of
0: you know, what was going on. It's funny, we both had some experiences in different parts of the world around policing. And you, know, you can go in different places everywhere from sort of Denmark to El Salvador to Northern Ireland to New Zealand. And there are always things you can find that are very, very different. But so often it's the front line dealing with the same stuff. The circumstances might be a bit different, but they're still dealing with burglaries and vehicle thefts and, you know.
1: Yeah, it's my experience that policing is broadly similar. Yeah. You know, there's only so many ways to break into a house and thump people, you know. And police officers around the world are dealing with human beings. You know, policing is policing, I think.
0: Because people are people. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. You took on the role then of heading up analysis for the police service of Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah. So we set up an analysis center and and created really a capability with analysts supporting everything from you know terrorist murder investigations through to community policing and heavily intelligence problem oriented
0: when you were in Police Service of Northern Ireland. If I'd become a commander of an area, basically area commander, what sort of training would I get before? Would I get much training before? You or? wouldn't. In my experience, we don't really educate commanders uh,
1: or decision makers around how to use. So know, this, this is fascinating. Yeah.
0: I've worried about this a lot because so much of policing is reflective of you are good at an individual role. You go and deal with an individual case. You might become a detective and then you're clearing individual cases or if you're on patrol, you're going and dealing with an individual domestic, an individual burglary, you're dealing with individual cases, and then suddenly, career-wise, you get in a position where you are in charge of crime prevention strategy for an area of 50 or 100,000 people, and it's not about individual cases, it's all about broad strategy, and you have no experience to get there.
1: And I think that's one of the things around, you know, the education of middle and senior police leaders that I think we haven't spent collectively enough time on you know there's a lot of discussion around what we should teach leaders and how we educate people in the sorts of things that matter when you get to middle and senior management So I think it's not a technical thing we need to be teaching people. I think you've got staff who can do that. It's about educating people about how to make use of, how to ask the right questions. I mean, I think books written in plain English that help people understand
0: these things. I mean, that was kind of the goal of my book, Reducing Crime, a companion for police leaders. Because even in there, I've got how to ask good and bad questions at CompStat.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there is a need for more academics who are out in the field and can translate some of this stuff and so that it becomes part of the education of a senior police leader. You know, we try and turn intelligence evidence into action through tasking and coordination yes. and actually running a good meeting which has got insights, ideas for action and then decisions around how to resource the problem. It's sort of simple thing, but we don't teach people None of that. Uh, to do that. No, yeah,
0: yeah. How long were you in Northern Ireland for? Nineteen
1: ninety-three to two thousand and seven. So quite time. a long
0: time. Yeah, yeah. What precipitated the move to New Zealand? Um,
1: well, I guess I think you and I met actually in, at a conference in Wellington. I remember, and it looked quite nice, and, um, <laughs> and I had a long weekend, and I remember standing next to the Pacific, you know, and and thinking this seems like quite a nice place to be. Anyway. I'd stayed in touch with a few people and they emailed me asking for advice about head of intelligence position and I sent a job description back and and more in jest to be honest at the bottom of the email said if you're thinking about advertising this internationally let me know. It seemed like a a good professional opportunity uh, and and a chance to do something
0: different and that's that's what I did really. And you've been there how long now? Uh, since 2000, and, well permanent,
1: since 2008.
0: You started as the, the first national manager for intelligence.
1: Yeah, so there wasn't a national manager and New Zealand was due to host the Rugby World Cup and we've been involved in a number of um, Five Eyes meetings. And I stress
0: that Five Eyes are the collaboration of five intelligence countries that work together, which is the UK, the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. That's right,
1: yeah. Established after the Second World War actually. Yeah, I started as the first national manager. I was then lucky enough to be appointed as the director of intelligence so I had a larger group and I set up the New Zealand Police National Intelligence Centre. It was a very small capability when I arrived there and we extended the reach of intelligence across all of the districts and created a national system. Used to be really quite localised with no national standards.
0: There were 12 districts in New Zealand and you set it up so that you had an intelligence manager in each district who was also in a high in the hierarchy, so very close to the district commander. Well, inspectors
1: or civilian equivalents, reasonably senior middle managers who had the ability to influence decision making, and that seemed to be quite an important. Because
0: you, you can't influence decisions unless you've got a seat at the big table. You need to be around the table. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it remains an ongoing challenge even in the intelligence field to have enough operational staff with the right experience to fill some of these roles, so I'm not suggesting that you know, the problem's solved, but the structure exists, I think, whereby that influence is brought to bear you know, at the table.
0: Mm. Is that what you work on first? Is structure more important than thinking about the skill sets?
1: I always think it's most important to get the right people, you know, frankly, and what you want, I think, are people who are interested in changing things probably, you know, in a particular way. A little bit of courage to tell people they might be wrong. I I remember in Belfast once standing up in front of a room full of detectives, there would have been 200 people in the room, and the assistant commissioner I worked for in the day stood up In uh, almost the first thing he said to the room was, If Mark's not making you feel uncomfortable at least some of the time, he's not doing his job properly. Blimey! Which I still remember uh, to this day. And what an uh, intro! Yeah, stony silence. Silent. (laughs) But I think I think he was right, and I also think that when people reflected on it, they kind of understood what he meant, and it became the subject of some good-natured discussions. And there's a way to make people feel slightly uncomfortable you know without embarrassing them or making them feel inadequate
0: right. most of the time I make myself feel inadequate <laughs> I always think it's about asking good questions
1: yeah and my experience is policing is very good at learning from other people so somebody tries something it goes quite well I'll have some of that we'll yes. try it here and actually we're gonna do it better so I always feel in policing showing people demonstrating and allowing people to see the results is the, the best way,
0: without forcing people
1: to do stuff. And if it works, people will adopt it, right?
0: So you're finding some value then in in New Zealand, pushing it evidence-based policing now?
1: Yeah, so more recently, as part of a programme of, of work called Policing Excellence, the Future, previous police commissioner had an idea of taking sort of insights to the next level, if I can put it that way. We'd had some contact with a range of academics and that wasn't too depressing uh some of it was good, some of it was good. <laughs> you know he, he to be fair he sort of had a vision without really knowing how to bring it to life so we discussed how we would do that and the idea of an evidence-based policing center was born and there was no money and never it, is and, yeah so what i set about doing really was to try and bring a bit of a vision to life by repurposing resource we already had and then extending and improving the relevance of some of the research. So we had a research capability for some time but what we tried to do was to bring this together and then focus it on specific things that we thought would make
0: a difference to frontline policing. So you've already had a research capability within New Zealand policing, that was a normal thing?
1: Well we had a a few researchers I think that were doing specific pieces of work in individual units. Right. Arguably interesting and useful, but not necessarily designed to influence mainstream policing, if I can put it that way, you know, to deal with a particular problem. And if we needed to look in detail, we would have gone to a university and asked somebody to look at something for 12 months and then write a report and come back. And there's still a place for that. Mm-hmm. But it's not what the philosophy of the centre is about, which is very much trying to be evidence-informed and driven, but to do that in a way that's relevant to frontline policing in a time scale that's appropriate and in a way that engages people. So it's a little bit different in the sense of having that operational mindset.
0: Right. You've been working in New Zealand, which has historically had a very low crime rate so what your concerns are not just about crime but also in terms of thinking about police legitimacy trust and confidence Mm. how do these things mesh with that traditional perspective of dealing with crime and disorder
1: Mm. it is interesting that the crime rate i think is one measure probably and reported crime to the police is arguably not the best measure of crime in the community and it's something that we've thought quite a lot about and what's better well i think you combine that with public sentiment surveys, there's a New Zealand crime and victims survey, you know, that's done annually that replicates uh, what's done in England and Wales, and that probably paints a more complete picture
0: of total crime. So many places I go to have no community surveys that are reliable indicators of sentiment in the slightest. Yeah. Yeah. They're missing a whole spectrum of knowledge then.
1: Well, I know that police data is highly dependent on the way in which we choose to collect what our priorities are. So, you know, perversely, the harder you work on drugs, the more of a drug problem you've got. Of course, and and, But that's lost in the statistics. We may have a relatively low crime rate, but we've got a gang problem that's become much more significant in recent years. Really? Uh, We have a a child homicide rate that's really not where it should be. And I think between New Zealand and Australia, we've probably got the world's most uh, profitable drug market for some types of drugs so we've got problems and challenges like you know other people and I think uh, the way that policing responds and the need for policing to be seen to be responding in a professional purposeful way is the same as it was in Belfast and is the same as in other parts of the world I think.
0: But a lot of these are also complicated by the issue of uh, demographics in terms of race and indigenous or first nation peoples. That's got to factor into that discussion about police legitimacy and trust and confidence, right?
1: So the indigenous population, the Maori population in New Zealand, is uh, significantly overrepresented in the criminal justice statistics. And also, if you do look at the citizen surveys, the trust and confidence in policing amongst indigenous uh, Maori population is lower, significantly lower than than it is for and white European New Zealanders, for example. So. I think we all acknowledge there's work that needs to be done and probably the most significant uh, initiative in that respect is something that we've set up called Understanding Policing Delivery. And that's like its formal name? That's the formal name of the programme and was born really out of the conversation that took place in New Zealand as it did in many other parts of the world after George Floyd and concerns about the fairness and equity of the delivery of policing services. So the program is set out to focus on three specific questions, at least initially. Who we stop and speak to, the use of force and against whom, and police charging decisions.
0: Right, because in New Zealand it's the police that make the decisions to run the prosecutions. Yeah. There isn't a separate prosecution service.
1: So we take advice from the, the Crime Prosecution Service, but equivalent, um, but um, police decide who to charge. and then, So we've got quite a lot of discretion and yes. choice in some areas. Right. And we've been working quite hard for what might call lower level crime to find alternatives to the formal criminal justice system. But, um Oh,
0: so that's been very much a police-led initiative to do that.
1: My Māori um, Pacific Ethnic Services Deputy Commissioner colleague has been working with the community, really, for 20 years, probably, on a programme to look at alternative resolutions for lower level offending. That right. requires, you know, less than six months. Um, Mr. How do you do
0: any tea, coffee? Actually, a cup of tea would be great, please. Uh, we do a grey breakfast lemon and ginger we do of course wings. you do you do it all but i'm very basic just a, a breakfast tea with some That's milk great. please thank oh, you i'll have another one of these please thank you thank Thanks you, you. Thank, you. thank you uh, where were we i forgot talking about your deputy
1: oh yeah yeah building um a program called tipai oranga so iwi um, community panels what's the relationship between maori and iwi maori is the indigenous people and iwi is the tribe so you would belong to an iwi, which is
0: your tribe. Oh, so there's multiple iwi's, but you're all part of the Maori people. Yeah, yeah.
1: Below iwi there's hapu, which is the sort of subset of a tribe. So I think we're now up to thirty, four, thirty five panels around the country. Anybody can appear before them. So although they were born out of the work within the Maori population, um, it's not exclusively so, and anybody can end up, in the right circumstances, um, appearing before one of these panels and what they are attempting to do is to take a more holistic
0: view of the person you know that sounds yeah. like a good thing for, for everybody, everybody right yeah, yeah. yeah
1: so you know policing often deals with people on the worst day of their life yeah and often an individual has had you know poor life experiences m- maybe you know health problems or education problems or homelessness problems a whole range of different things and what we're trying to do through this Understanding Policing Delivery work is to take our view around how can policing, what levers does policing have to deal with some of these
0: issues? I think what also people fail to appreciate is that there's also a strain on police who are forever dealing with people who are on the worst day of their lives. It just gets exhausting after a while. And if we can find ways to root people out of that, that's why I tell people I used to love foot patrol because on foot patrol you met everybody. Where as soon as I got in the car, the only people I met were people who were stressed. They were either the victim crime or they were suspecting crime. All you make every day is people on their worst day of their lives. So if we can change that around, it's actually gonna help policing, right?
1: Yeah, you know, policing's at the sharp end of of this and, and sometimes the, the choices that we've got lead us down a particular pathway. What we're trying to do with, with the research is is first of all find out, frankly. Because there's all sorts of reports and opinions and perspectives. Actually nobody's worked with the police to understand the issue that's probably the first thing and the second really important thing is i am sure that we will find examples individual examples you know probably problematic and challenging you're
0: yeah, going to get it wrong it's going to happen
1: but this is about systemic issues this is about whether our policies and procedures
0: lead to particular outcomes for some communities i'm just astounded to hear that there are communities and organizations out there that want to tell you how to do your job without asking you about it. Yeah, I I think it's it's a feature of policing isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) everybody's got a view. I'm shocked to find gambling going on (laughs) in this place. (laughs) Um, In terms of refocusing what the delivery of policing is, because the central tenet of it is trying to explain to people, as you said earlier, who gets stopped the charging decisions. How much of that involves working with people who have just got strong opinions before they even understand policing at all? Yeah. We got work to do,
1: so our own staff need to have confidence in what we're doing because they are delivering the service of policing and they need to feel confident that they can tell us what's happening so that if we need to improve things and change things we can and they have confidence that we're not going to pick individuals, you know, and hold them accountable when actually it's a leadership problem and a system problem. Right. And the community probably needs confidence that we're serious yes. about the work. We've deliberately set out to talk about fairness and equity. Now, there are lots of other labels that people want to put on some of these things, but I have a difficulty in believing that fair and equitable policing isn't something we should all strive for. And what we're trying to do is work with an independent panel and a police frontline operational advisory group together to try and identify where the opportunities are, agree on the language, and help everybody understand what this is about.
0: So you've got a whole committee set up with just frontline cops. How much are they in conflict? Because there's often been perceived to be a conflict between management policing and frontline policing and they're often at at loggerheads with each other. So the model was purposeful and deliberate
1: in terms of saying the way policing is delivered depends on, I think we talked about it earlier, frontline sergeants and constables. Huge, huge And and they are the people who ultimately will come into contact with the community and make choices. So this frontline group, and we've got, I think, now 32 individuals who've been nominated and volunteered. Not voluntold. Not voluntold, they want to be part of it. And what's been interesting is We've had a number of joint meetings between frontline police staff and this community panel. And be fair to say that the early meetings, there was a level of you know, uncertainty and sure. possibly a little bit of tension. As they work together, it's been quite interesting to see the common interests
0: which have emerged I love your choice of language possibly a little tension <laughs> as a master of understatements I can just yeah, imagine there was blood uh, on the floor yeah, but it's, yeah
1: uh, I don't think there was blood on the floor but I think people were concerned about what what the other, other side forthcoming would think, changes yeah. yeah and so a group of academics as you know for frontline police staff can sometimes seem a bit intimidating
0: can't it and
1: they're concerned they'll talk a language that and I'm not really like that
0: I don't know I'm not I wouldn't describe them as intimidating you know, generally i say a group of I don't know what the collective term is but when I see a group of academics I think it's a confusion of academics.
1: I think the idea really is to allow that exchange of ideas.
0: But all of this has to be implemented and I think implementing change in policing is incredibly difficult. Implementing real change, you've brought change in in Northern Ireland, you've brought change in in New Zealand. How have you found success where a lot of other people have failed? I think for me
1: implementation is by far and away the most Poorly understood and least well thought through area of what we do.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Yeah.
1: Cheers. So we design a great plan and spend 90% of our time on the planning and 10% on the implementation.
0: And was it uh, General von Molke said, no plan survives contact with that's, the enemy? That's right. So,
1: what I find myself doing really in my career, frankly, is spending much more time with decision makers on implementation and allowing other people to work up the detail of the plans. I find myself sitting often in multiple meetings for long periods of time with decision makers, implementers and helping them understand how to do this on the ground. And that's the piece, I think, in most of the ratings and most of the research that we seem to miss. And you'll find implementation is very context-specific. For example, we've tried to replicate some of the experiments on repeat victimisation that have been done in the US and the UK and New Zealand and it doesn't work in quite the same way. Right. The theory sound? The is sound but the context and the environment are often different. Everybody might be committed to the plan but then events happen and the ability to deploy staff to the same location for the amount of time that we need them to be there to prove the hypothesis gets undermined because something else happens and, and so instead of acknowledging that what we do is sort of pretend that we're really doing the things that we're not and then something fails it's not it's not because it was a poor plan but the implementation hasn't been right but we don't really understand it there's something around implementation science I think that's quite important in a policing sense
0: So it's not just a matter of uh, sitting in headquarters, writing a memo, and then have this naive expectation that people in the field are implementing your grandiose ideas? In my experience, that almost never happens. Well, the memo happens. The memo gets sent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we think the job's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I think you have to be incredibly persistent. It's hard work. It can be exhausting.
0: But when it goes well, my word is it rewarding, you know? That involves getting out of the office doesn't it? It involves getting out of headquarters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Walking the
1: ground and some of my best
0: and most challenging experiences have been sitting
1: in front of groups of frontline staff and and debating the why with them. To get change in my view people have to understand the why. Yes,
0: and they buy into it. And they buy
1: into it and and there's often a little bit of a how as well, right? Yes, okay, I understand why. I don't really have the tools to know how, so there's a bit of that, but fronting those conversations which are almost always quite difficult to begin with because people naturally want to understand why what they're currently doing needs to change. For good or bad, yeah.
0: this is what we do and now you want me to do
1: something different. Tell me why.
0: Yes, See, even in those circumstances where they're not happy with how it's being currently done, but you're bringing something new and that involves some sense of risk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. This goes back as far as Machiavelli and writing about people just not being invested in the new order of things, but being invested in the old way, even if it wasn't perfect. That's right. And what I have found is if you listen
1: to staff, they will tell you what's working and what's not. The worst thing to do is to listen and then push on and do what you were gonna do anyway.
0: You've been there through a whole range of things now in New Zealand. The Christchurch Terrorist Attack 2019 with the Royal Commission as well. What was it like working in policing through that? What were the lessons you picked up from those areas? So Christchurch was a tragic event. So
1: an individual who we have collectively chosen never to use the person's name murdered 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch and injured 40 other people. So in one of the particularly significant features of the event, it was live streamed, so the individual attacked individuals with weaponry and broadcast it live using a camera on a helmet. And so it was widely disseminated across the internet on all sorts of websites. And and it became notorious really as a terrorist act because of that as well as the tragic number of people that were killed. Yeah. The policing response was one of the most impressive I've been involved in. um, Two frontline constables in Christchurch arrested the offender within 17 minutes. And so the immediate response was very impressive. Clearly, in the days and weeks after that event, there was a lot of concern about whether there could be other events. And so I was the executive lead for our intelligence work in the days and, and months afterwards. And it was incredibly challenging, I have to say dealing with the volume of information the need to chase down any potential other risky individuals and it was in my recollection is is one of the most challenging six or eight weeks of my professional life i have to say because there was just so much there was so There's much so going. much information
0: i've written this before we used to be information poor we're now information rich but knowledge poor trying to figure out from that massive information what are the parts that yeah. are significant That's the biggest challenge of the 21st century.
1: So if you don't know something, you can legitimately say, we didn't know. It's much more difficult to explain something if you have a piece of information in your system, but you fail to identify the significance of it. Because if and when things go wrong and somebody reviews, you had information, you could have done something you didn't. And, And that's a problem. So a lot of what, I think I've spent my professional life doing is, is trying to reduce and manage risk, and to ensure that we've got good systems and processes to maximize the value
0: of every piece of relevant
1: information. And that requires good systems, but mainly it requires
0: good people. We've talked about the intelligence side, we've talked about the data side. All of that leads us to your moving forward I think more than just about anywhere else I've been to in terms of bringing evidence-based policing. What's the receptivity you've had for evidence-based policing? So I think, to be
1: fair, the organisation's probably had 10 or 12
0: years of thinking about
1: using information in positive ways. So the organisation's philosophy has been around prevention first. That's required more of a data-driven insights approach. And we've done quite a lot on problem solving. I won't pretend that we've embedded it, but... We've got District Commanders who, many of them, you know, are familiar with uh,
0: the principles, so as an organisation... They've done more than just tick a box in a promotion exam. Yeah, well, I I mean, I think we've got a number of Commanders who are
1: active supporters and have tried stuff and are, I think, honest enough with themselves and the organisation to know when it's worked. and and then to acknowledge when it hasn't yeah so it does require a level of maturity and i i don't think you can simply launch into today we're going to be evidence-based like it or not you need to go through a maturity conversation uh, i think probably the the single uh, most significant piece of work that the center has done is an evaluation on our new staff safety model our tactical response model which is multifaceted But at the outset, we set out to evaluate the impact of of the changes that we were making around, you know, equipment and training and systems and processes. And the operational lead, Assistant Commissioner, worked with the Evidence-Based Policing Centre on the design of that to ensure that the centre evaluated the results. Now, I'm not suggesting there wasn't a level of healthy tension.
0: There's good corporate speak Um, right off the bat Healthy tension. Healthy tension.
1: we had an evidence-based policing centre, uh, sort of evidence-based policing global societies conference. One of the presentations was a joint presentation between the operational staff involved in the staff safety tactical response model and the team of researchers that had worked on it. Really interesting session. It's online, fascinating
0: conversation. I think. If I'm working in a mid to large police department and I don't really have much knowledge or an evidence-based policing capacity or centre what would you say to me what's the selling point why should I
1: I would say most people are in that position frankly yeah. I mean you know people have got a day
0: job and actually
1: it seems a bit discretionary doesn't it in some respects
0: a little bit esoteric and academic yeah, yeah yeah that's fine you do that
1: because I've got a, a job to do here um it, for me I can honestly say that I don't think policing has ever been under more scrutiny than it is today I think it's critically important that we police in a way because policing by consent as a model requires policing to have the support of communities to be successful. So while we're doing our day job, we really do need to understand, I think, the things that matter. So interestingly, we have policing by consent in our strategic plan. It's not well understood. So a random sample, I can tell you, of staff in a typical district, probably 20% of them might have heard of it. And um, interestingly, of the people that had heard of it, most of them thought policing by consent had been developed by the current police commissioner, because it was in our plan. Now-
0: No sense of the history of democratic uh,
1: policing. Yeah, so for me, there's something we have to do to raise the level of understanding and awareness about some of these things. And so I would say that the way we police Uh, and understanding some of those um, elements that give the community confidence in policing is really important for everybody. And in terms of what to do and to read, there are some good recent publications that I'm looking at. Jerry Ravka's book on evidence-based policing, the basics. I understand now it tells you, you all now about no you know it. there's no way I can cut this out, right? Yes. It, it's a really good, um, and I'm not just saying this, I, I think you wrote a previous book on intelligence-led policing, and dare I say, I think I endorsed it. I think I have a comment on the back of it. That's it's your a, mistake. It's an essential read, I That's think. your mistake. So I do think there's a role for academics working with practitioners to get that
0: now i have to buy your lunch bloody hell yeah yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, look i i just think it's uh, everybody should be given access um this sort of material
0: so now after that plug i suppose i have got to buy your lunch but for spending a bit of time with this morning cheers mate thanks very much thank you very much nice talking to you jerry that was episode 59 of reducing crime recorded in london in february 2023 Follow at Reducing Crime on Twitter for new episodes or at jerry underscore Ratcliffe for my personal random ramblings. And consider subscribing at Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever, why don't you? If you teach, you can DM me for transcripts or an Excel spreadsheet with multiple choice questions for every episode. Be safe and best of luck.